Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. You know, in a week or two, we'll reach our two-year anniversary here at Open Your Eyes, and it's been quite a journey. We started this podcast as just a way to share a few thoughts and stories to a small group of people, but it's grown far beyond what we expected. And I don't think it's grown because we do the best job and definitely not because I'm the best podcaster. But I do think that we, like you, are just trying to get a little better each day. And good podcasts and uplifting encouragement is contagious. And we all need a little encouragement in our day. This podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life and the firm belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. So today, I hope this podcast improves your outlook and gives you a few tools and maybe a bit of a new perspective to think and live better. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about the best that lies within you. Now, if you travel back 20 years to the decade called the 2000s, from the year 2000 to 2010, and ask what was the most popular television series of the decade, could you guess what it is? And you likely did guess it. It is The Office. The Office was a sitcom about the lives of office employees at the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and it was based on a similar series in the UK. The next most successful series of that decade was developed by Aaron Sorkin, but success wasn't what Aaron knew early in life. Born in New York City, his mom was a schoolteacher, and at Scarsdale High School, Aaron loved drama and theater club. Then he was off to Syracuse University, and in his freshman year, he failed a core requirement class, and because of it, he couldn't participate in drama until he brought his grades up. Well, Aaron did eventually pass the class and entered the drama program where he was taught by drama teacher Arthur Storch. Now, one of my favorite stories about Aaron is this. During his senior year, his teacher, Mr. Storch, told him over and over again, You have the capacity to be so much better than you are. For an entire year, he told Aaron over and over again the same thing. Then, on the last day of classes, he said it again, and Aaron finally responded, How? And his teacher answered, Dare to fail. So, with his professor's advice, Aaron launched his acting career in New York. But it wasn't much of a launch. Soon he was doing singing telegrams and traveling with a children's show and handing out flyers for a hunting and fishing show, but not much acting to speak of. One day, while at a friend's house, he found a typewriter, and he started writing on the typewriter, and he said he felt a phenomenal confidence and a kind of joy that he had never experienced before in his life while he was writing. So, daring to fail, he wrote his first play and sent it to his college professor, who produced the play. And it was so well-received that it helped him get an agent, and his next screenplay was a courtroom drama called A Few Good Men. It was inspired by a phone conversation he had with his sister Deborah, 
who had graduated from law school and was serving in the Navy as a lawyer. And she told him she was on her way to Guantanamo Bay to defend a group of Marines who came close to killing a fellow Marine in a hazing ordered by a superior officer. Well, Aaron wrote the screenplay and sold it, and the movie grossed $243 million at the box office. Aaron said, I grew up believing and continued to believe that I am a screw-up and that growing up with my family and friends, I had nothing to offer in any conversation. But when I started writing, suddenly there was something that I brought to the party that was at a high enough level. And when he started to write, he found something inside him that was remarkable, worth remark. And this feeling fed his desire to become even better. Now, he would go on to write Malice, The American President, The Rock, Enemy of the State, and several other films. But in 1997, he started working on a political drama called The West Wing. The drama was a bit of a spinoff from his movie, The American President. And between 1999 and 2007, The West Wing was one of the most watched series on television. In all, Aaron wrote 87 screenplays for The West Wing. Now, after The West Wing, Aaron would go on to write Moneyball, The Social Network, Molly's Game, and many other screenplays. And he's become one of the most successful and prolific writers in Hollywood. And it all started with a typewriter that brought out something that was inside him, a a talent that had lied dormant inside of him, but was brought out at the right moment in life. Aaron's story, by the way, isn't unique to Aaron. Many of you listening to this podcast have something remarkable that lies within you. Perhaps you've found that remarkable something and it has already made itself manifest in your life. Perhaps others of you believe there is something inside, but you haven't yet seen it manifest. And you've likely heard the saying, what lies behind you and what lies in front of you pales in comparison to what lies inside you. Now, I believe this is true. I believe you and I are endowed with something inside of us that can lift our life and the lives of our team for good. If, like Aaron, we will stick with our attempts until we find our story that has yet to be written. On November 1st, 1978, President Jimmy Carter established the President's Commission on the Holocaust. The commission was chaired by Eli Weissel. Eli was a survivor of Auschwitz and the author of The Night. Night is his memoir of his experiences in living in Nazi-established ghettos and then in Auschwitz, where his father would be killed in the crematorium. Well, the President's Commission made 1.9 acres of land adjacent to the National Mall in Washington, D.C., available for a Holocaust museum. The cost of construction was $200 million, and it was all funded through private donations. The construction lasted four years and was completed in 1993. The building was designed by James Ingo Freed and contained several exhibits, including Remember the Children, and Daniel's story. Now, I've been to the museum several times, and like many of you who have been there, have been moved by the stories that are told there. In one of the small theaters, there are stories told of enduring the camps and the liberation by the Allied forces. And my favorite story is that of Polish-born American writer Gerda Weissman. On September 3rd, 
1939, German troops invaded the then 15-year-old Weissman's home in Poland. Days earlier, her family had received a telegram from her uncle telling them the Germans were coming, but they couldn't leave because her father had just suffered a heart attack. Soon, the German occupation took over, and her brother was taken away and forced to serve in the German army. And because they were Jewish, they were confined to the basement of their own home. There, they had no running water or electricity, and strangers moved in upstairs. Two years later, the worst day of her life, she says, on the 28th of June, she saw her father for the last time. He was eventually sent to Auschwitz and would later be murdered. Not long afterward, Gerda and her mother were taken from their basement home. When they got to the train assembly location, the girls were separated from the women, and she and the other girls were being loaded into a truck. Well, she jumped off in an attempt to reunite with her mother, but a rabbi threw her back into the truck, telling her if she stayed, she would be killed. Her mother yelled to her, be strong, and the trucks rolled away. Her mother would later be killed at Auschwitz as well. Now, the girls were taken to another train yard and loaded onto train cars, and they were taken to a labor camp. There, they were marched from the railroad station to a factory and barracks located behind fences. For one year, they worked and labored on the looms. One day, Gerda was sick along with two other girls and a German inspection was happening. A guard, friendly to the girls, came in, helped them get dressed and onto the factory floor. It was life or death that day because those girls not able to work were killed. Gerda spent three more years in various labor camps along the German-Polish border. One camp in particular in Marsdorf, Germany, was particularly cruel and harsh. Well, as the war was coming to an end, in January, the Germans were attempting to hide any traces of labor camps. So they loaded the girls onto a train, and after their journey, when the train doors opened, it was a cold, snow-filled expanse. 2,000 women and girls were told to march, and they started to march in dreadfully cold conditions without coats, food, or protection. They started to march on the 29th of January, and many girls fell from exhaustion or frostbite or were killed. Well, thankfully, the last day that Gerda saw her father, he told her to wear her ski boots. Even though it was summer when Gerda was taken from her home, she wore her ski boots. And on this cold death march, her boots saved her life. The girl slept outside in the snow. And after three months of marching, starvation, and other deprivations, her best friend succumbed to the march. But before she passed, she said to Gerda, you will be alone, but you will be okay because you are lucky. Well, as Gerda held her, they both fell asleep and only Gerda woke up. Of the 2,000 girls who started the march, only 150 survived. And the march came to a halt in Volary, Czechoslovakia. The SS soldiers put the girls into an abandoned bicycle factory. Gerda had lost an incredible amount of weight and she only weighed 68 pounds. As she and the other girls stayed in the factory, they had no food, nothing at all. And on May 7th, she saw a car coming down the road. It wasn't a German car. The car had two U.S. Army officers inside. And as they approached the camp, one of the soldiers saw a girl standing at the doorway. So he approached her. It was Gerda. She was in disbelief that someone from the Allied armies was there in front of her. He said to her in German, do you speak English or German? She replied, I speak German. 
Then she said, we are Jewish, you know, as if that would somehow cause him not to be interested in saving her. But he didn't answer her. But she could see under his dark glasses that he was crying. And he finally responded to her, so am I. The soldier was Kurt Klein, who was born in Waldorf, Germany. His parents had sent him to safety in the United States. And Lieutenant Klein asked Gerda about the other ladies, saying, may I see the other ladies? Well, the polite term of ladies was something Gerda had not heard for six years. She said, come, let me show you. They are inside. Then Kurt held the door open for her. Again, something she had not experienced in a very long time. For Gerda, it was a moment of restoration of something that had been inside of her, a restoration of humanity and dignity that she had almost forgotten she possessed. Well, they went inside the factory. He said it was an undescribable scene. Women scattered across the cement floor on scraps of straw. Some of them were skin and bones, most of them almost dead. All were skeletons having lost so much weight. And as he looked over this scene of devastation, Goethe made a sweeping gesture with her arm and quoted the German poet Goethe from his poem entitled The Divine and said, Noble be man, merciful and good. Kurt was astonished at her ability to summon such an appropriate line for such a moment. Nothing could have underscored the irony of the situation more than this line. Gerda still had lying within her the words of poets and a sense of dignity that was not lost through six years of enslavement and starvation. Well, Gerda and the girls were liberated, and Kurt took especial care of her. He not only opened the door for her that day, but she said he also opened the door for my life and my future. You see, Gerda Weissman and Kurt Klein were soon married, and Gerda never learned what happened to her brother. But Gerda exemplifies that good and noble something that lies within you, that there is something remarkable inside you waiting for the divine to ignite and for you to liberate. So. What dignity or talent or ability lies inside of you? Some of us spend much of our life never knowing what lies inside of us or giving it the opportunity to surface or rise because we can't see what is inside of us. But I think we often don't see what lies in us because we're focused so much on what we don't have or can't do that it prevents us from seeing what we can be or do. You know, when Eric was a freshman in high school, one day he woke up to discover that he had lost his sight completely. Now, he had been going blind since he was a child, but now it had become a reality. At three years old, he had been diagnosed with an eye disease, and low vision specialists had predicted that he would lose the last of his sight sometime in his early teens, and he had. Eric became angry and bitter. He resented the fact that he could no longer see. He could hear everything that was going on around him, but he couldn't see, and he had to be escorted and led around school. And this was something he hated. He felt condemned, and he didn't want to learn to use a cane. He was reluctant to learn Braille. He rejected help from other students, and he just felt pitiful. As one author wrote, 
One day, Eric was riding home from school in a van designated for disabled students by the district. And as was his habit at the time, Eric was complaining to the driver. Eric told the driver he wasn't blind and that he belonged on a bus with his sighted friends. Well, the driver, having grown tired of Eric's constant haranguing, pulled off to the side of the road and had Eric step out of the van. Suddenly, Eric felt a basketball bounce off his face. The driver stated the obvious. Eric, you can't catch a basketball. You're blind. The words were harsh, but they were true. Then the driver instructed Eric to hold out his hands, preparing him to catch the ball. And he threw the basketball again, and Eric caught it in his readied hands. The driver said, Eric, stop fighting people. Let people help you. Well, thanks to his driver's brutal honesty, Eric finally saw the reality of his situation, that denying his disability was stifling any chance of him succeeding in life. And to transcend his adversity, he had to first embrace it. From that day forward, Eric wanted to define himself by what he could do, not by what he couldn't. And he would later write, the things I could not do, I would let go. But the things I could do, I would learn to do well. And it was this shift in mindset that prompted Eric to try out for the wrestling team. In his first year of wrestling, he won zero matches and lost 15. But by his senior year, he would notch 33 victories and be named the team captain. He would later compete in the National Junior Freestyle Championships. And despite losing his mother a year later, which was a devastating loss for Eric, he continued to let what was inside him guide him. He took up rock climbing, and with the physique he built as a wrestler, he was a natural. Soon he was climbing all over the country and set an eventual goal to climb the seven highest peaks in the world. Well, it took him 19 days to reach the summit of Denali, but he did. He then went on to climb Aconcagua in South America, Kilimanjaro in Africa, and with a team of climbers who climbed with him regularly on May 25th, 2001, Eric became the first blind person to ever reach the summit of Mount Everest. Here's the point. To find out what lies within you may require you follow Eric's example and say, the things I cannot do, I will let go. But the things I can do, I will learn to do well. Next, to help others find what lies within them or to find what lies within you, you may need to remember who you are and where you came from. As a young girl, Laura loved to ride horses bareback over the hills of her father's Maryland farm. And when she wasn't riding, she was reading, sometimes reading her favorite novels over and over again. And by the time she reached junior high school, she had written a desk drawer full of short stories, which she wrote when she was supposed to be doing her homework. She would read and write stories about horses and racing. Her favorite? About an unlikely jockey named Red and a misfit racehorse. Well, more than anything, her short stories seemed to say to her, you were born to be a writer. At Chevy Chase High School, she made a big impression on her English teacher, and Lara began to think, to dream that someday she would pen a literary masterpiece. Well, not long into her college experience, she became deathly ill. She couldn't stand or sit up in bed, and she had horrible vertigo. When she would eat, debilitating nausea would set in. And with her energy gone, scared and confused, 
she dropped out of college and moved home. There, her health plummeted downward. Finally, doctors diagnosed her with chronic fatigue syndrome, a condition with no cure or treatment. While trapped in her home, Laura felt totally confined. Her world had narrowed to her bed and window. Her family and friends didn't understand her sickness, thought it was laziness or depression, leaving her even more isolated. She said her life had become something unrecognizable. She wondered, how did my life turn out like this? And how did I get so far from my goals and the life that I had imagined? Well, not to her extreme, perhaps. I think all of us, though, sometimes experience this from time to time. How have I strayed from what I know I can do or who I truly am? How could my life be so different from the person I thought I would become? How come I haven't yet done what I set out to do? You know, we all find ourselves at times held back by habits, unmet goals, and life's misdirections. Perhaps we've lost the feeling, the motivation to work to bring out the best that lies within us. Well, if this sounds familiar to you, then take a lesson from Laura. One day, while confined to the upper room of her home, Laura made a decision. She decided to write. At first, she tried writing at her desk, but the nausea and dizziness would set in. So she wrote in bed, often writing with her eyes closed so she wouldn't see the room spinning around her. But she still tried, and it took her six weeks to write 1,500 words. Then, one day, she found her super strength. She found a photograph of one of the horse jockeys in her pile of short stories that she had written as a child. It was a photo of Red Pollard. As a young girl, she had read her favorite short story about him. He was too tall, too heavy to be a jockey. A horse had kicked him and blinded him in the right eye. He had fractured his back, hip, legs, and ribs. And at one point, he spent 12 years living in horse stalls, starving himself, trying to live his dream. Well, as she looked at him and he looked back at her, she knew for years he had been calling to her to write his story. And she knew then what her literary masterpiece would be, a story about Red and, in a way, about herself. Well, day after day, in pain, imprisoned in her home, for five years she labored. In September 2000, she mailed her manuscript off to the publisher. And in March of 2001, Laura Hildenbrand's book, Seabiscuit, became the number one best-selling book in America. Since it has sold millions of copies. The story was about a horse who was bred to win, but didn't. Seabiscuit lost his first 17 races. He was eventually sold off to an owner of a car dealership, and you know the rest of the story. Revived by a new trainer and a jockey who has broken himself, Seabiscuit would become Horse of the Year in 1938, and his statue still stands proudly at Santa Anita Race Park. Well, boosted by her success... Laura, while still suffering from her chronic condition, would write another book, Unbroken, a World War II story about survival, resilience, and redemption. It was a second and unexpected triumph over her circumstances as well. Now, I don't know all that Laura went through to reach her goals, but I do know she did something very few of us ever do. She decided, inspired by Red's photo, she decided that she would finish what she started and let what lied within her come forth. She decided, despite her circumstances and her condition and her limitations, that sitting in her desk drawer was the story that she had started years ago that she would finish no matter what. 
And I wonder if you and I have really decided, so to speak, what goal in life, what talent inside of us, what start to our life story is sitting home in our desk drawer. Now, I suspect many of you over the years have written down on a piece of paper a goal or two for your business or life. For some, that piece of paper once hung on your mirror or wall, and maybe it said, I will get out of debt, or I will get my degree, or I will grow my business. And over the years, as circumstances arose, it found its way to the bottom of the pile. And from time to time, you see it, and you pick it up, and remember the feeling of hope that you felt when you first wrote it. Have you slowed down long enough lately to imagine, to think what it would feel like to reach that goal? Have you ever considered the feeling of crossing the finish line, that finish line moment when you can look back and see you rose above your circumstances and found the best within you? That sense of accomplishment that you would get when you say to yourself, I did it? So many of us know we have a hunch about what lies inside of us, about what we can truly do in life, but we falter, don't we? We let mood and feeling and life get in the way. And you may question from time to time, can I ever do what I set out to do? At times, you may even feel inadequate. Maybe you came here to this podcast today feeling a bit inadequate. If so, let me tell you something of which I am absolutely certain. You have greatness and power lying within you. You are greater than your fears, stronger than your circumstances, and more powerful than your habits. Like Seabiscuit, you may have lost a few races, so what? You were bred to do remarkable things. You have the divine DNA inside you to rise above your past failings or mistakes. And like Laura Hillenbrand, what you can achieve is far beyond what you have thought possible. There is a goal calling to you to finish what you started. You are more precious and valued by your maker than you can possibly imagine. And you can grow beyond your past plateaus, past mistakes, and your past weaknesses. It's time to let them go. Nothing is impossible. The word itself says, I'm possible. Now you may say, but McKay, I'm nothing special. I don't have anything remarkable inside me. I'm mediocre at best. Well, join the club. I'm mediocre. This virtual podcast room is filled with mediocre. Do you know the origin of the word mediocre? It is mediocris, which means halfway up the mountain. And that's what I am, and that's what you are. You're just halfway towards who you're meant to become. And you may say, but I set a goal, and I start strong, and I get into the work of it, and the negative things, the negative thinking, the negative feeling gets the best of me, and I lose my motivation. Well, I don't care what you're doing. If it's worthwhile, it'll be challenging, and the negative will come. But that doesn't mean you don't possess the remarkable inside you. You do. It just means that we, all of us, need to be more purposeful about pursuing the talents that we have. I agree with Stephen Pressfield, the author of The War of Art, that most of us have two lives, the lives we live and the lives we're capable of living. And to live the life you're capable of living doesn't require some huge change today. It simply requires a consistent effort. You know, a study conducted a few years ago by Salary.com found that the average person wastes nearly two hours of every working day. 
So if you feel like you're floating in a sea of sameness with everyone around you, just take advantage of a few of those wasted minutes each day to begin a purposeful work towards what lies within you. You may have heard the fisherman's prayer, which says in part, O God, thy sea is so vast and my boat is so small. Yes, a small boat can still navigate big waters. The Santa Maria, Christopher Columbus's ship, was around 70 feet in length, not big by any stretch of the imagination. Today, many people wouldn't take a 70-footer on the same journey as Columbus. And he had a crew of 40. 40 people on a 70-footer is a lot of people in a very small space. And the La Pinta was only 56 feet long. But it wasn't the ship or the capabilities that drove Columbus, but rather what he could see that mattered. Long before Columbus set off on his famous mission of discovery, he was battling trying to find a way to prevail against the westerly winds, the wind direction that prohibited sailors from sailing into the sunset. One day, in conversation with his brother Bartholomew, Bartholomew remembered the Tuscanelli map, which Christopher had inherited from his father-in-law. The next day, Bartholomew asked Christopher if he still has a copy of the map. They get the map and have a long discussion about traveling to Asia by sailing west. It was this conversation between two brothers that caused Christopher to recall years earlier shipboard discussions about lands to the west of the Great Ocean. The next morning, Columbus re-examines the map, and he notices the notation that one could get to Asia by sailing west. His thoughts are interrupted when another customer enters the shop with a request for charts showing wind patterns off the coast of Western Africa. And during this conversation, Columbus recalls his experiences sailing off the West African coast, where the winds blew towards the west and northwest. That night, Columbus wakes up and concludes that the secret to a round trip to the west was to drop down south to go westward with the trade winds and then north to his destination, which is exactly what he did. It didn't matter that Columbus didn't have funding, he found it. And he didn't have the best ships, he made do. What mattered was that he had a vision of where he was going and how to get there. Yes, the sea is vast and your boat is small, but even the small boats find the best within and make journeys that change history. The same goes for you. Set your course to bring out the best within you. Like Aaron, when you find the best in you, write your story. Like Gerda, don't let anyone or anything keep the best within you from coming forth. And like Lara, it doesn't matter your circumstances. Remember what you have been called to do. And watch you will go on to find the best that lies within you. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.